Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians. And as you do, there's no doubt that today is a significant uh, day in the life of our, our church. It's no small thing to consider adding um, new elders to the leadership of, uh, of the church, which is why I, I was so encouraged during my, my preparation this week as to really how applicable this text is for the moment that we find ourselves in. So let's pick up reading in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Brothers, I I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached Christ, preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Those words, I am perplexed about you. I'm confused. Paul's like, when I left you, I had every reason to believe that you were brothers and sisters in Christ. You appeared to embrace the gospel. You appeared to embrace Christ. But now Paul's saying, I'm not not too sure anymore. Thus what he said in verse 11 that we looked at last week, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul's concerned that what what appeared at the time to be a, a genuine conversion may not have been genuine at all. Based on the other imagery that he he uses throughout the text relating to childbirth, Paul's wondering that what they actually experienced, what he experienced with them, may have been nothing more than than false labor. Maybe it was false conversion. Now, why does Paul think this? Well, because the evidence that they're putting forth is evidence to the contrary of what one would expect of somebody who has experienced or received new life in, in Christ. They're not living according to what they claim to believe. There's not a pastor out there, well, a pastor worth anything, who doesn't deal with this very thing on an ongoing basis, the potential of false conversion. This paragraph in particular gives us incredible insight into how Paul responds, specifically how he responds as a pastor. See, we often think of Paul as the evangelist, in which he is. We think of him as the, the church planter, of which he is. There are no, is no one better. No better evangelist, no, 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 no better church planter than we see in the New Testament than the Apostle Paul. Yet, 
we often, we fail to see Paul as the pastor that he is. So what I want to do today is look at Paul, the pastor. And since we're looking to call two new pastors to this body, ask the question, what, what must one expect? What must a church body expect from their pastors? So seven things from this text, starting with number one. A pastor must be an evangelist. And not just a pulpit evangelist, not just saying things from, from a stage. He must faithfully, intentionally make every effort to proclaim Christ to the world, to tell the glorious message of the gospel to those he is encountering throughout his life. And this requirement is by no means exclusive to pastors. So if you think that you're off the hook, that this is going to be a message solely focused to pastors, to the contrary, it's a message for all of us. This requirement is not in any way exclusive to pastors. It applies to every believer. Every believer is instructed by God's word, his inerrant and sufficient word to go and make disciples of all nations. Evangelism being a crucial part, an essential part of the disciple-making process. But I wanna, what I want to glean from Paul here is how. Just a small nugget of how. So notice what Paul says in verse 12. Brothers, I, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Now, if Paul had a mission statement, this is it. We, we see him say the same thing in his very first letter or, or round about the same thing in his first uh, letter to the church in Corinth when he says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. The question is, what does Paul mean by this? Because in one sense, it kind of sounds like Paul speaking like a politician. He kind of sounds like he's speaking like a little shyster there. Like, I'm a, a used car salesman, if I will. Like, hey, I'm just going to be this to this person. I'm going to say this to this person just to, to get them to say what I or believe, what I want them to believe. That's not the case at all. That's not the case at all with Paul. See, Paul is, is an ethnic and cultural Jew. He's a Jew. But he's also free in Christ. He's, he's a Christian, which means while he'll always be ethnically Jewish, nothing's going to change his, his Jewishness. His Jewish culture will always define him in, in, in some way, just like whatever cultural background we're coming from is going to shape us and define us in, in some way. It no longer defines him or shapes him the way his identity in Christ defines him. He is first and foremost a Christian. He is a Christ follower. See, the gospel is cross-cultural. Same gospel preached and believed by peoples of every nation. Why? For there is no other gospel. This, this is it. If, if what we preach cannot be believed and received in every single culture among every single people, then it is not the gospel which is, again, what we looked at last week. We who are in Christ are one in Christ. Meaning in what matters most, we who are in Christ, we, we have more in common 
with brothers and sisters in Christ in Iraq and Afghanistan and Yemen and Kenya and other places across this country around the world than we do with someone from our own culture, even our own family that does not know Christ. It's the bond that we share in Christ. So when Paul went to Galatia, for example, he set aside his Jewish culture, which is huge, right? And he lived like a Galatian, meaning he ate their foods. And he, he sang their songs and he participated in their traditions. He, he immersed himself into the Galatian culture minus anything that would be against or compromise the gospel. Now the question is, why did he do that? Because he had no desire to make the Galatians Jewish. His aim was to bring them to Christ and to see Christ formed in them. So he was afraid that if he said, yeah, I'm sorry, I cannot eat that. That pork looks, yeah, I can't do that. I can't, I can't eat your pork. No, I, can't, I can't have that. No, 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 I'm, I'm sorry. We can't really associate together until you get circumcised. Any number of things that he could have brought to the table from his Jewish culture. He thought that that would confuse those, they would confuse those things and connect them with the gospel when they're not the gospel. But now when he was among fellow Jews, how, how did he live? He lived like a Jew. He wasn't going to, to pull out some pork and some ribs in front of his, his Jewish friends and be like, hey, I'm free in Christ. You're, we can have this together. Like, no, why? Because that would have hindered, hindered his ability to share the gospel with them. They would consider that offensive. So in the same way, he was not trying to make the Jews Galatians. Think of it this way. I'll give a personal example. If I were asked to preach at a church that was a suit and tie kind of church, and I stepped into that suit and tie kind of church dressed like this, right? I don't find anything wrong with what I'm wearing. Uh, it's, a little, it's not formal. It's not completely casual, but it's not a suit and tie by any means, right? Now, if I stepped into that pulpit, suit and tie, formal church, how would people in that church likely respond? Now, some be like, man, that's what we've been waiting for, right? <laughs> Others of them may say silently in their heads, like, I really wish he would have wore a tie or at least a coat. Like, but then others, based upon personal experience, would come up afterwards or at least talk to their pastor and say, how dare you let somebody preach in this pulpit who's not wearing a suit and tie? Because that has become like their thing. Like you have to wear a suit and tie if you are preaching in the pulpit. But let me ask you this, is that a gospel issue? It's not a gospel issue. It's a cultural issue. It's a cultural issue that some of us know all too well. So in one church's culture, that may be a suit and tie kind of culture. Another church's culture may be shorts and, and flip-flop kind of culture. The question is, however, isn't what is being worn, the question is what's being preached but the reason that dress matters in this illustration is because it can distract from the message being preached. So if I'm asked to preach at a suit and tie kind of church, 
I'm going to roll my eyes thinking, man, I'm going to wear a tie today. <laughs> but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wear the suit. I'm going to wear the tie. I don't know if it's going to fit appropriately because uh, I don't wear it week in and week out. But I'm going to wear the suit and the tie, not because the Bible says so, but because I don't want my dress to distract one way or another from the gospel. I want to become as they are so that I can then in turn ask them to become as I am in Christ. I want the focus to be on Christ, not what's being worn. I want the focus to be on Christ, not a particular food. See, the aim is to see people come to know Christ, to be formed into the image of Christ, not to make the Galatians Jews, not to make West Virginians or West Virginia Christians, Kentucky Christians, or Tennessee Christians, or Georgia Christians. This is why Paul would become all things to, to all people. This is why Paul says, I became as you are. I became Galatian. Now become as I am, free in Christ. So what Paul is saying is what every pastor, every Christian should be saying, be like me as I am like Christ. This is the heart of an evangelist. Number two, a pastor must prepare the church for suffering. Now why prepare the church for suffering? Because suffering is an inevitable reality in this fallen world. Every one of us will suffer. Christians are no exception to suffering. The Bible is clear. If Christ suffered, then we who are in Christ will also suffer. That doesn't mean we go looking for it. I've shared this illustration before, but I was talking to a guy in seminary while we were there who asked me, hey, hey, what do you feel called to do? Which is another way of saying, hey, what, you want to be a lead pastor, a student pastor, a, a missionary, music guy? What, what, do you, what do you feel called to do? It's, a, it's the standard seminary question. So I responded and said, I, I feel called to preach Christ. So whether that's working with students or leading a church, whatever, I feel called to preach Christ. Now, if somebody asks you, like, what you do, what do you kind of feel obligated to do in return? To ask them the question in return, right? Like, you got to follow back up. So I follow back up and I said, so, okay, what do you feel called to, to do? And he just point blank called back and said, I feel called to be a martyr. Like many of you, I'm thinking, what do you do with that? I... I I'm like, what do I even say? I, I said the first thing that came to my mind. I said, well, good luck with that. <laughs> See, as, as a Christian living in a, in a fallen world, we don't have to go looking for suffering. Suffering is going to find us one way or another. It will find us soon enough if it has not already. And if it has already found us, it will find us again which means we have to be prepared to suffer. And understand when it comes, it's, it's not without purpose. It may feel like that at times. Feel like, what is the purpose behind this? But that's why it's so important to be prepared with this understanding before the suffering comes. Good theology comforting us in our suffering, helping us to suffer well, help us, helping us to suffer with purpose. Look what Paul says in verse 13. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you first. 
Now, no one knows for certain what this bodily ailment Paul suffered from was. There's all kinds of speculation. I think many believe in this context that it was malaria, but again, we can never know for, for, for certain. But what we do know is that it was because of this ailment that Paul ended up in Galatia. And because Paul ended up in Galatia, this bodily ailment that led him there allowed and opened the door for Paul to preach the gospel to the Galatians, which tells us what? Paul's suffering was not without purpose. God used Paul's suffering to bring the gospel to those who had never heard. But now let's be clear. Paul didn't know that at the time his suffering began. He didn't, it wasn't like, oh, I've got this bodily ailment. Yes, God's going to bring an unreached people group to himself because I am sick. But he, he didn't know that. Just like us, he didn't know the outcome of what his circumstances would, would be. He didn't know whether he was going to live or whether he would die. But here's what he did know. He was going to use every single opportunity in his life, good or bad, to make much of Christ, including his suffering we say that? We're going to use every moment in our life to make much of Christ. See, the, the Lord was using his suffering here to teach him. He's using our suffering to teach us. But we look at Paul and his words from his other letters, and, and we see that he was, the Lord was using his suffering to teach him that God's grace is sufficient and his power, God's power, is made perfect what, through Paul's strength? No, through Paul's weakness, through his weakness. So here's Paul suffering from this bodily ailment. His weakness is on full display. And what does he do? He proclaims Christ. He gives a reason for the hope that is within him. He makes the truth of the gospel known in the midst of his suffering. And what happens? The Galatians believed. Verse 14 telling us, they received me, they received Paul as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. I Meaning their reception of Paul here wasn't so much because they loved Paul, like, man, he's a really cool guy. No, or because he was just so articulate. But they loved the Christ, Paul proclaimed. So it was in Paul's suffering that the weakness of Paul magnified the power of the gospel and the glory of Christ. Oh, church, may that be said of us, that, that Christ be made known through our weakness, that Christ be made known through our suffering. Number three, a pastor must not be chosen based upon appearance to which my response to that point is, praise God. <laughs> At the same time, I'm, I'll be clear, I'm not trying to say anything about either David or Jonathan uh, in, in that statement. I, I'm, I'm saying we don't choose or judge a pastor based upon how he looks or based upon his intellect, nor his charisma, nor his stage presence, number of Twitter followers, name recognition, or anything of the sort. Again, not trying to say anything about anyone in particular. We choose and judge a pastor by what he preaches and what he teaches. Yes, there are other things, but this is of paramount importance. Specifically, does he preach Christ? Does he preach Christ? 
We're not looking for pop psychology. We're not looking for an entertainer who's going to get up and entertain us with a bunch of good stories and make us laugh and walk away. We want someone who will humbly and faithfully open up God's word and point us to Jesus. As Paul writes to the church in, in Corinth, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's the call of a pastor, to preach Christ crucified. And if I ever or any of our elders ever stop preaching Christ crucified, we are no longer qualified to pastor and elder this church. See, Paul's bodily ailment left him weak in the eyes of the world. But yet, what did his weakness do for the grace of God? It showed its sufficiency. It showed that God's power is made perfect in weakness. That's the job of a pastor, to decrease so that Christ may increase. And again, I I pray that that's the cry of every Christian I pray that this this is the cry of all of us in this room, for our names to decrease so that Christ's name may increase, that we want Christ to be made much of, not by pointing to our works and saying, man, look what I did. Man, I am such a good public speaker. That story, that's the one. It got them, yeah. But by looking at our weaknesses and saying, oh, look at how beautiful and gracious And powerful Christ is. And that's what we have with Paul and the Galatians. Paul weakened by his suffering, faithfully preaching Christ in the midst of his suffering. And how did the Galatians respond? They believed. A reminder, God doesn't need our strength. He doesn't need our charisma or our eloquence or our gimmicks to draw sinners into himself. Our God uses the faithful proclaiming of his word, his gospel, to penetrate the darkness and draw sinners to himself. Meaning we preach Christ crucified, nothing else. Why? Because it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. A pastor who does not do this has no business being called a pastor. Number four, a pastor must tell the truth, which sounds like a no-brainer, right? Well, of course a pastor needs to tell the truth. All of us have to tell the truth. It's one of the commandments. And we must tell the truth not even in the, good, in the easy times, but in the difficult times. We must tell the truth even to those who don't want to hear the truth. We must tell the truth even when the truth may be offensive to those we're telling it to. I think about Mark chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, but it's the death of John the Baptist. John imprisoned by King Herod because he told King Herod the truth. John telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He told him, you shall not commit adultery with your brother's wife. Seems obvious enough, right? He gets locked up for it. He eventually loses his head for it. Just telling the truth, biblical truth. Now, what I find really interesting in, is how Mark sandwiches this account between the sending out of 
the disciples to go do and say what Jesus has been saying and do what Jesus has been doing. And their return, when they come back and they tell him about it, and, and, and he sandwiches this in the middle as to say that whoever follows me, whoever follows Jesus, can expect to be treated as John was treated. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we'll lose our head, but we're required to speak the truth even when it's not what someone wants to hear. Consider the Galatians, again, as an example. They had previously received Paul, cared for Paul, appeared to believe the gospel that Paul had preached, but but are now turning to a different gospel to which Paul would say there is no other gospel. But this is why he's so perplexed in his understanding of them. Why he asks in, in verse 16, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? See, nothing about Paul or his message has changed from when he was with them until now. What's changed is the Galatians' receptivity of his message. They're not looking to to chop Paul's head off necessarily, but they're rejecting the message and believing a different one. And since this message is the gospel, it's saying that they're actually rejecting Christ himself, a rejection that has clearly wounded Paul. He's wounded by their rejection because they're rejecting Christ. And I get it. I empathize with Paul in this. I wish I couldn't, but I I can. To see people who you think are, are tracking turn away and reject truth, it's heartbreaking. It's gut wrenchingly heartbreaking to see this happen. But what's the alternative for a pastor? What's the alternative for you, brothers and sisters in Christ, who who love this individual? What's the alternative to compromise the message and just tell them whatever they want to hear? Is that our alternative? Well, that's our culture's alternative, but that's not the Christian's alternative. No, we do what Paul is doing, and we continue to faithfully present the truth. See, this is what I love about expositional preaching. For those who are not familiar with the term expositional preaching, it's the type of preaching that we do here at at Harvest Point. It's basically, sum it up, it's reading God's word, explaining God's word, or exposing God's word, taking the point of the passage, making the point of the sermon, and applying God's word. That can be done in a variety of different ways. There's not just one cookie-cutter approach to it. And our, but our typical approach is to just preach through books of the Bible. There'll be times when we won't, but by and large, we, we just preach through books of the Bible, which means you never have to wonder about what's coming next. Whatever we, ha- we stop at today, we're basically probably picking up at next week. We're not standing up here and preaching our favorite passages or shying away from from difficult texts. Whatever comes next, that's what we're dealing with, which forces us to preach the whole counsel of God, not just what we're comfortable with. I'm not going to be like, well, I don't really like that one. I'm going to shy away from this text, like like next week's passage, right? For example, don't read ahead too far, but you just look and see Sarah and Hagar, and if you know anything of this situation, like, yeah, pray for me in that. Like, we're going to come back and preach that next week. Why? Because that's what comes next, and we're not going to shy away from it. But yeah, truth matters. The last thing that this world needs is more wimpy pastors who are afraid to speak the truth in love. 
We'll get to the love point in, in just a moment, but way too many men filling our pulpits today who care more about what people think of them rather than what people think of Jesus. People are dying and going to hell, and they're being comforted along the way by men who are scared to speak the truth, and they only want to put on a show. Number five, a pastor must not look to make much of himself. That's actually the type of behavior we see coming from the false teachers in Galatia. Verse 17, they make much of you. Paul saying these false teachers, they, they flatter you. They tell you what sounds good. They tell you what sounds pleasing to you. They make you think that they care about you, but they do so, as Paul says, for no good purpose. Paul's saying they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Meaning the Judaizers, these false teachers, had no interest in the Galatian believers beyond their own personal interest. They want the, the followers to follow them. See, while Paul's only desire, however, was to see Christ formed in them. These, these false teachers are only looking to gather disciples around themselves. They're no different than a, than a cult leader. Their, their efforts are, are self-serving. Not so with Paul. See, Paul warns against these false teachers and the, the false gospel that they're, they're teaching, not because they're opposed to him, but because they're opposed to Christ and his gospel. Paul's not looking to make a name for himself. He's looking to make much of Christ. This must be the aim not only of every pastor, but every Christian, to make much of Christ, not ourselves. Number six, a pastor must be compassionate and loving. So we've seen the, the need for thick skin, the ability to tell the truth in the midst of, of strong opposition. There, there's no room in pastoral ministry for, for thin-skinned pastors who get their feelings hurt with every critical comment. If that's the case, they will not last. But at the same time, that, that's no excuse for a pastor to be a jerk. A pastor must possess a, a tender heart. Thick skin and a tender heart. A heart of compassion a love for the people the Lord has placed under his care. We've seen Paul's thick skin. We've seen his boldness. We've seen his ability to, to break down in, in any and every theological argument of opposition. But what we see here is his tender heart. We see his tender heart on full display, his fatherly affection and love for the Galatian believers. Saying in verse 19, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. This is Paul pleading with the Galatians as a parent would plead for a wayward child to return home. It's done because he loves them. Yet even the word he uses for children here literally refers to a small child. So couple that with the imagery of childbirth that Paul is using. And he's saying the Galatians are like babies who refuse to be born. And he so desperately, <clears throat> as their spiritual father, he so desperately wants them to be born and to be formed into Christ's likeness. Why? Because he loves them. Because he loves them. Number seven, a pastor must be patient and steadfast. 
So returning to verse 19, what's Paul's ministerial aim with the Galatians? That Christ be formed in the heart and life of every Galatian believer. So while he's clearly frustrated, clearly perplexed, he also understands that being formed in the image of Christ doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. Time many pastors are sadly unwilling to give. Frankly, it's more time than than most Christians are, are willing to give. We want immediate results. We want immediate maturity. Doesn't happen fast enough or gets difficult. We either give up or we move on. But the Christian life doesn't work that way. If we want to see Christ formed in the people we love, we must be patient and steadfast in our mission, which is why Paul's illustration of childbirth is so appropriate. A woman doesn't get pregnant and have a baby all in the same day, does she? Talk about a whirlwind of emotions if that were the case. Nor does she deliver a mature adult. There's a process. It takes time. Parents have to be patient Not only waiting for the baby to be delivered, seems like those nine months will will never end, but they end, and before you know it, what are you doing? You're actually being a parent. You're you're raising a child. Well, actually, you start by just keeping the child alive, right? And then there comes a point where you begin to parent the the child. And then they're going to make decisions that are going to leave you completely and totally perplexed. Like, what are you thinking? They're going to have you as a parent thinking, and have I failed as a parent? Have I completely failed as a parent? But but what do you do? You continue to patiently and steadfastly teach them and lead them in the way that they should go. And it takes time. It takes a lifetime. And what makes it that much harder is that every child is different. So the moment you think that you got this whole parenting thing figured out, Like, ah, I think I finally figured this out. Well, then comes child number two, right? Or child number three, or in some of y'all's cases, child number eight, right? And and like, you're like, ah, my patience and steadfastness has just had to go to a whole new level um, in this process because they're all different. And that's the story of pastoral ministry. That's the story of the Christian life. That's disciple making. The Spirit using God's Word and God's people over time, a lifetime to form Christ in God's children. Christ's likeness doesn't happen overnight. I wish it would for my own self, for you, but it doesn't happen overnight. How does it happen? Drip, 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 drip. It's one sermon at a time. It's one conversation at a time. It's one Bible study at a time. It's it's one thing after another, slowly but surely, patiently and steadfastly pointing people we love to Christ, feeding them biblical meals that they may not want, may not even think that they need, may feel like they've moved beyond sharing difficult truths, encouraging them through struggles, praising the victories reminding them over and over and over again of God's promises. I love how throughout the Old Testament we just see the words remember said so often. Remember, remember, remember. These simple truths that matter so much. And realizing the more our lives 
are gradually formed into the image of Christ, the more consistent our Christ-likeness will become over time. See, that's what Paul wants of the Galatians. Saying in verse 18, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you. So when Paul was with them, they gave off the appearance of Christians. Young, growing Christians. They gave off the appearance of godliness. But when Paul left, they they didn't. They believed the gospel he preached when he was present. But they were deceived by false teachers when he wasn't. And what Paul wants is for them to be consistent at all times, whether he's with them or not. He wants them to be mature, that at all times their lives will make much of Christ. And that's my desire for you as well, that Christ be formed in you, church, that we will make much of Christ together at all times. Church, I don't say this lightly, I don't say this flippantly. I love you. Your elders love you. You are a loved people. So encouraged by what the Lord is doing. Want nothing more than to see Christ formed in you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I thank you for this body of believers that you have so graciously entrusted me to, to help pastor. The church is, as your word teaches, the bride of Christ. And you care for her and love her in ways we will never fully comprehend or understand. And one of the ways you love her is by providing qualified and faithful pastors to lead the church. May we never take the responsibility of choosing our pastors or holding our pastors accountable lightly. So, Lord, give us wisdom in the coming months as we discern your will for for our church and the calling of additional pastors. May this body continue to grow and serve as a bright, shining light in the midst of a dark and sinful world. May we be faithful in making much of Christ. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.